You're listening to Bits and Pieces, Episode 2. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Edwards. And I'm the other host, Matt Duncan. And as we do with this show, uh, we're, we're here to talk about music, not only from the listener perspective, but as producers and appreciators of the craft and the, the skill and the artistry that goes into it. And our primary topic for today is the evolution of video game music. And uh, anyone who follows video games has has heard how how soundtracks have changed over the years from very, very simple single note melodies in the Atari era um, to more multi uh, polyphonic in the NES and Super NES era to fully recorded orchestral um, just sky's the limit stuff in the modern era where you can pretty much do anything you could do in film or, or other areas. And this has changed the way music works in video games. And I, I guess we're here to examine that. So maybe for starters, what is it about earlier video game music that we feel might have been lost or, or modified? Now, for me, the, the reason that topic was uh, kind of dear to me, and I've talked to uh, talked about it with other people, with coworkers, and people who I know have been playing video games for a long, long time, is that for some reason there, there's a consensus that Older soundtracks seem to be more memorable. Now the problem is always that you have those nostalgia goggles and of course it's more memorable. You were, you were playing these games as a child. But even now as I look back, if I just pulled up, uh, all the Final Fantasy soundtracks from one through seven through eight and up to, to the latest one, um, it still seems that way that for some reason I can remember 20 or so melodies from every game, but from the latest ones, um, the, the one I no- really noticed where, uh, where that happened was, uh, I think, Final Fantasy twelve, mm-hmm. where it all seemed to be more orchestral, ambient, and there was not so much a focus on the melody and more giving the game a, a, an ambient or atmospheric bed to work on. And... Where it used to be that, of course, yet yet uh, the way you would do harmony was playing really fast melodies. So there there wasn't really a way to do any pad sounds or anything in, in, in back in the days. And then there was this, I guess, intermediate phase where people were still using MIDI. So that was I, I always have Final Fantasy Seven, Final Fantasy Seven in mind with that. So ob- obviously, it isn't really recorded, but it's some 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 MIDI synth shenanigans mm-hmm. going on and even in that time I, I have a feeling it was more melodic for some reason and more memorable than when they started to do full orchestral soundtracks and even if it, if it was just a I guess it's a, a sampled orchestra and not really recorded with one but somehow the focus seemed to change or, or at least that's what my feeling is about it now if I jump through the uh, the soundtracks on uh, as I said, I just pulled up some um, YouTube videos with, uh, with the full soundtracks, and I jump through the th- jump uh, jump through the soundtrack. I find a lot of melodic content even in the newer games, but for some reason I didn't remember that. And I played these games mm-hmm. for the same time, for the same amount of time. I mean, we both played Final Fantasy fourteen. Now, other than the uh, Chocobo theme that sounded like uh, oh, yeah. John Williams, honestly, <laughs> was. With, which part of the soundtrack was is still memorable to you? We could say we could still hum the melody yeah. or something. It's just not there. 
And it's not like while I was playing, I was thinking this music is bad. Yeah. By any means, um, I'd probably if I if I jump back into the game, I'd be like, "This is fine. This is yeah. This is the, the music fits perfectly fine, but on its in itself, I can't remember it." <laughs> I, I have a theory that I, I'd toss out there that um, one of other than the complexity of music possible changing that you know the hardware is better the you just have disk space to work with so you can use recorded audio and not rely on MIDI. Um, another thing that has definitely changed is the amount of other sounds that are involved in games. Yeah, because when you're playing a 16 or 8 bit RPG. Other than like the sound of a magic spell or a, a weapon hitting, um, or occasionally a few other sounds like for noises in the in the game, it's really just music. So it's sort of like 100% of the bandwidth can be taken up by the most interesting, memorable melody that can be as busy as it wants to be, and. In modern games, you have voice acting. You have full a full bed of sound effects for everything: footsteps, doors, things in the environment. Um, let alone all the voice acting, and and so you you do need the music to kind of disappear a little bit because it just can't compete with hearing what the character is saying. So I'm I'm thinking that it's it's a mix issue of we've got more going on now, and so I need you to tone it down, music man. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I think even into the PlayStation era where you started having voice acting, but it's pretty, pretty terrible voice acting. Like everyone <laughs> remembers the first Resident Evil game with some of the worst, um, campiest voice acting ever. And so even that, even there it was kind of used sparingly when it was used. So you still had all that room for the music to dominate the, the interesting sound space. And now it's more like film where, you know, there's movies that have perfectly great soundtracks and you never think about them. And then sometimes there's movies that have really amazing soundtracks that jump out and, and capture you. Um, it's easy to think of Star Wars for this or actually a lot of what John Williams has done. Um, even though it's very cartoony and I mean, it makes sense for the universes he's composing for. I can think of the Harry Potter music or, um, Superman in the seventies. Um, a lot of that, those themes jump out, but, they're often matched with sequences where you aren't having a lot of dialogue. It's it's zooming spaceships, and you can have this bombastic um, stuff in your face. Yeah, it's true. Um, and with that theory in mind, I, I think it would be interesting to analyze Final Fantasy X because I think that Final Fantasy X still has a very memorable soundtrack, but it also has voice acting. So now it could yeah. be that just what you just said, um, the the... the the, the songs and the tracks from the soundtrack that are more memorable are in the parts where there's not a lot of dialogue and then when the cutscenes happen and a lot of talking is happening it gets more into the background and the songs get a little bit more I get yeah, simplistic or ambient, just more ambient yeah. and I'm, I'm just going to write that down I'm, I'm actually going to do that I'm going to analyze <laughs> and see if if there is a connection there yeah Another topic we, we were going to bring up was how music can get more reactive to what the player is doing. And you mentioned Banjo-Kazooie, and we can talk about... Um, I'm not as familiar with how it used it, but I am familiar with uh, Zelda Ocarina of Time as one of the first examples I can think of, of a game that what's happening in the game affects the music. And it's pretty simple in Ocarina of Time. Basically, you got happy music on the overworld, and you happen to go near an enemy... 
and then the music kind of instantly morphs into more threatening music and it's very seamless it's not it's not like another song started and this one ended it's it's very like the music transforms and different instruments appear and um although the melody does change right yeah it it is it is kind of like a new song but it's it's like it's not just we faded this one out and this one faded in it's 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 a little bit more interesting than that it probably took a little more um ingenuity on the software side to figure out how to do it but um it's it's interesting that that's something that that came into being in kind of the PS1 and 64 era Yeah, so so in in effect, what happens is uh, you've got one track playing, and then it kind of fades into a different track in a way that you don't really notice, but uh, fits the atmosphere. It's probably got yeah. some some of the like DJ style beat matching, like yeah. they just they know how to which part of the song and the tempo to to do it because it's still MIDI. That's that makes it a bit easier in that way. Yeah, that way. yeah, and yeah. So the the way Banjo Kazooie does it is a little bit more intricate. So. Um, also there you so so you imagine um you've got a you've got a and like 20 tracks uh, 20 tracks of midi playing with different instruments and so you you enter a level and um let's just take for example the uh, the uh, the uh, the hub world where it's grunty's lair so you walk in and the main melody in there is played by a xylophone or a marimba and you've got the, uh, the the background harmonies played by soft strings and a little bit of percussion. And while you walk through the layer, which is a very big layer, so uh, I guess um, Mario's ca or Peach's castle in Mario 64 is, is just a small part would be a small part of it. Mm -hmm. So as you walk through that, the the gradually the uh, instruments which play all the different melodies change over time. So. So at some place you've got the trumpet playing the main melody and then somewhere else you get a piano playing the main melody and it all smoothly fades over so instead of the whole track fading over you've got little different instrument changes and mm -hmm. so all the uh, instruments accent different parts of the rhythm and so you've got basically 10 different songs out of one song just by switching through the instruments and um, so that's also an interesting way to play on the light motifs that are uh, used in all the uh, soundtrack uh, in, in the whole soundtrack where basically every character somehow has a, has its own melody and then you get it getting it played like this in the halloween stage and then you get it played like this in the uh, ice mountain stage and so so you've got basically a lot of different tracks that are getting uh, that are being faded in and out all the time instead of the whole song in itself And the reason I remember that is that I felt that recently it made a comeback, at least in some some horror games, I felt like. So um, we've always got this ambient bed of, uh, yeah, tension from from some synthesizer pad or some strings or just noises. And then whenever something uh, happens, I mean, you can you can say that the, the radio in Silent Hill is part of that as well if you if you would count yeah, it to the soundtrack absolutely. so where the uh depending on where you are on the level or on the stage or wherever you the, the game takes place that a new track appears in the in the soundtrack itself so uh it's always you, you don't you never hear the same soundtrack twice yeah. because it always changes depending on where you are in the game Man, Silent Hill is a great soundtrack to even the, the actual songs. They, they have this real grungy, um, almost 90s grungy, but very, very, very nice sounding uh, tracks, rock and roll songs in the intro. I think Silent Hill 2 especially. 
is, is kind of the hallmark to me. But then in the game, like, so they use that sort of like as the intro to like get you get your heart racing, get you into the weird, strange world of Silent Hill. But during the game, it's it's way more like found sound kind of like can we blur the lines between the environment and the music and it, it's hard to even describe it as music exactly um it's you know i remember just some of the creepier parts and you know silent hill the pattern is oh i'm in a school oh now i'm in the hell version of school <laughs> or i'm in a hospital now i'm in the hell version of a hospital <laughs> um and it always is a precursor you go in like the nice version it's still creepy even when it's like the clean non hell version and then at some point, you you know, you step into the wrong room and everything transforms. But um, just the use of like metallic and rumbles and different different environmental sounds that are actually part of the soundtrack, but they're sort of indistinguishable from things you you see in the environment that could be making those noises. So that's definitely a a modern soundtrack that is different than the the old melody driven stuff but is no less great at, at doing what it needs to do. Um, and I was trying to think of what other modern games, like what's the, in the past few years, has there been any games that have unquestionably great soundtracks, but are, are noticeably different than this, this earlier era of, of simple melodies. And one thing that came to mind to me was the, uh, the last of us has a really great soundtrack and it's, it's very uh, ambient. It's you know, there's very simple like acoustic guitar noodling that happens, and but it's all very memorable. I can play it back in my mind right now. The sort of the this theme that comes up over and over, and it's mostly like a bed of pads of like this moody music, and then occasionally some guitar notes over it. But I don't know, they, they kept it real simple. And that's a game that is about as dialogue heavy as you can get. Um, even, even during gameplay, when you're running around, the characters are talking to each other constantly. And they made it work. And they, they made it work in a memorable way. Well, I was thinking also just now about how, like, a lot of the great Mario soundtracks are just different forms of ragtime. Yeah. And just, just very, very vibrant. They all blend into one in my memory. Yeah, <laughs> apart from from the first ones from the from the uh, Super Nintendo and maybe still N sixty four, but other than that, it's all just one blend of kind of the same melodies with a bit of variation. As you said, yeah. it's all ragtime. And I was thinking, like, is there like if I'm playing a modern game? I guess if I'm playing a modern Mario game, it would still be appropriate. But for the most part, I can't see most games supporting that music being played (laughs) it'd be almost like yakety sax was playing while you while you're you know this really serious last of us scene is playing out and (laughs) 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 it reminds me of of the uh the people who post screenshots when they play some horror game and have a website full of kittens pictures of kittens and (laughs) playing this uh happy shop music from um from uh mother three was it (laughs) yeah but then like maybe the metroid soundtrack would would work for a modern game because it is ambient and moody and and sparse and i don't know portal 2 comes to mind i mean portal 1 as well but uh, especially portal 2 where they put even more into it um and even they have I, i remember that somewhere they have a track where what I just described with Banjo-Kazooie happens uh, where you've got three synthesizers playing arpeggios or some other kind of melodies and they're warping 
through each other because the, mm -hmm. they don't have the same time signatures. So you can stand in this one place where you activate all the three lasers, and each laser plays a different different melody. So depending on the order in which you activate them and the uh, gap, the time gap between activating yeah. them, you get a different soundtrack. Oh man, I can remember in the first portal, the the first time you like break out of the the testing track and yeah. you're. You're, you're seeing the, the painted messages on the wall and like they, they, they sort of like, it's almost like someone's got their hand on the fader and they just sort of push up this, this little heartbeat techno stuff and you just like, oh my god, I can't believe, whoa. And it's, it's perfect. It's perfectly done. Cause I think it's mostly pretty sparse, um, and quiet in that game. And so it's, it's a nice contrast where suddenly as you start to transgress against this AI, and and you're you're leaving the zone and you get this music that sort of gets your heart going excellent work yeah another game i just found on my list before we uh i mean i don't want to go down all the uh, the whole list now <laughs> and start oh yeah, this is a great song but one that really stands out okay now i gotta mention two because they're right next to each other here is uh the first one is bastion yeah which is just perfect i mean it's uh, indie, I, I wouldn't say indie rock, but it's kind of got something of massive attack in there, and sometimes it, it, it it's borderline industrial at some parts, in my opinion. So lots of melodies, and even in there you got some voice acting, not a lot, a lot of it, but uh, some of it. Yeah, you've got a narrator going. Yeah, so you get it's one of the the, the soundtracks that I can re really vividly remember, and I would listen to any time. So I would just put mm -hmm. it on as this, uh, as opposed to what I just said with, uh, let's say Final Fantasy 12. I, I mean, I, I I'm gonna put it on in the next days and just to listen to th through it and give it another chance. But as I said, the, the main point that I had was I felt like I couldn't remember all these soundtracks anymore. And the reason for it wouldn't be like, okay, they are bad soundtracks, but it just shifted in its function and, what they desire to, to make out of it. But I do feel like maybe we're just, maybe this is the nostalgia goggles. Cause when we think back, we think of all the great game soundtracks, Ninja Gaiden, Mario, Zelda, all these games that had great soundtracks in the, in the eight bit and 16 bit era, but there was a mountain of crap. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why it's, it's always tempting to compare the best of the, the past era to like the mountain of mediocrity that's still with us today. And yeah, like I can't, like I'm, I'm playing the newest Assassin's Creed now and I can't hum anything from that soundtrack. I have no idea. And it's not that while I'm playing it, I think anything of it because I'm just playing the game, but there's nothing memorable about that music to me. But. There's obviously things like The Last of Us. I just thought of an, a game that kind of bridges the the gap between the, the the past and the modern, which was this iPad game, which I think is on Android now too. Uh, Super Brothers Sword and Sorcery. Do you ever play this game? Mm, no, I haven't heard of it. Um, so they spell sorcery S W O R, sort of like sword, sword and sorcery, and the music is so good <laughs> in this game. And it's it's a pixel art game. It's it's an indie game, but it has this amazing pixel art aesthetic to it. Um, kind of some Instagram filters over it too. But gorgeous game and really amazing soundtrack. And um, that's one I'd, I'd call to mention is definitely worth checking out. 
Uh, yeah, one one soundtrack I really wanted to mention, just because it does something special once again with the with the music is Braid. And if you've played Braid, you know that yeah. it's, uh, it plays around a lot with with time and shifting time forwards, backwards, and at different speeds. So um, most of the soundtrack is uh, cello based by uh, Jami Siba, and at at one of the stages where you can. Um, make a copy of yourself so you've got your character is just like a puzzle jump and run and so you can turn back the time and at that place your uh, shadow copy of you will just play back whatever you just did and with that shadow copy another copy of the soundtrack also plays in the background so it's just a simple cello based plucking melody and you can hear that and then you get this melody twice on top of each other and you always get a different effect and it always sounds nice so uh, obviously they haven't planned for it because the song existed before the game but he really found out something there which effects like that always seem to me like there was some happy accident in the programming and the soundtrack wouldn't play correctly and then suddenly he noticed hey that sounds cool let's let's do it uh, let's do it on purpose but i would spend hours on the stage just going back and forth just doing a, a different version of the soundtrack just by moving one of the copies back and forth and was an interesting um yeah an interesting mechanic that fit well uh, fit very well to the game mechanic itself of course yeah so i said so now before we um st- just start writing down uh lists of games with amazing yeah. soundtracks um i'm i'm gonna do some homework i'm gonna analyze the uh, final fantasy 10 soundtrack and give the final fantasy 12 soundtrack another chance now that i'm because i sometimes you you just have things in memory that that I mean I I'm I'm now replaying Final Fantasy VIII because I didn't give it a chance back then so maybe yeah. with Final Fantasy XII suddenly I'm gonna come back and say oh I've I've been wrong I've I'm yeah. just I just haven't pay, didn't pay attention when I played it I'll be interested to see what your analysis brings because I mean definitely pay attention to the other sounds in the game and yeah you know is the music worse or is it that there's more a more complex thing that has to be accomplished yeah um and maybe we'll you know i figure the answer will be somewhere in the middle or a little of both but um i mean it's possible that soundtracks are just worse now but um it seems like it depends is going to be the answer um so maybe with that uh, we can lay to rest for now the video game soundtrack discussion and move on to our picks of the week and uh would you like to go first uh, of course. Okay, so my pick of the week. I now since you brought up uh, a video game soundtrack last time, I was about to do the same, but then I thought, nah, I can. I, if I if I pick a video game soundtrack, I'm gonna pick just one forever for the whole show. If uh, no matter how many episodes we do, so I'm gonna lay low with that for a bit, and I <laughs> picked something completely different. So. um my pick of the week is Rain and Soil by Uniform Motion, uh, who described themselves as illustrated indie folk. Interesting. Uh, which means that they've one, uh, one mom of the band, uh, when they're playing live on stage, um, sits there with his laptop and, uh, and, um, and a graphic pad, a uh, graphic tablet and draws little cartoons that fit to the music and to the song. And they are very coordinated with that. So some, Whenever the, 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 I mean, the, the songs never change. So of course he can, uh, kind of build up something like somebody else would do with a light show with his, uh, drawings. So it yeah, always fits some in. of the, the elements he'll go to. Right. 
So, um, but other than that, for the song itself, so it's, uh, I'm, I'm really madly in love with anything that's not, uh, a 4 4 time signature. So, um, that song is slightly math rock, although fully with an acoustic guitar and you can play it with a loop machine. I've done so, so you can play it with one loop machine and fill the whole song with it. And it starts out with this syncopated melody that you just think it's uh, in, in 5-8. And then at the end, it just puts two notes or so at the end. So, so it goes back to 4-4 four, four and plays, he plays another melody on there and then another me- melody on top. And then he starts singing and loops that as well. And it has this build up at the end that just goes on and on and on and always another layer in there and always another guitar, but it's, it never gets too crowded and you can always hear every single note, although at some point it's hard to differentiate which guitar plays which note of these. Yeah. And, uh, it's just, I can always listen to this song and it's, I guess it kind of, it's kind of sad song, of course. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the name itself. But uh, it always has this little shimmer of hope in it, so yeah. uh, it's just the right mix. Maybe we could hear a little bit of that here. Yep. So when I listened to this song, I immediately thought of Frederick, who is a, another sort of um, definitely gloomier sounding kind of syncopated guitar plus other elements, whispery, wispy vocals um, in the in the same ballpark. And so I immediately liked uh, this choice of years of rain and soil uh, for that reason, because I'm already a fan of stuff in this genre. Um, is there more you want to say about this one? They, they've, they've brought another album last year, 2014, uh, which is called The Magic Empire. And usually I'm not the, uh, the, the acoustic guitar guy. So I'm, I'm more into electronic stuff and, um, even then just electric guitars. But, uh, it's one of the bands where I really can just keep listening and put on any album and, uh, listen to it from start to finish and in that genre and that really folky folk genre in that sense. So um, mm-hmm. they kind of stand out for me in, in that regard. Folky folk. Folky folk. <laughs> <laughs> for my pick of the week, um, I went with... So I was just uh, watching some movie trailers recently, and I, there's this Ewan McGregor movie coming out called Son of a Gun. And I don't know how I feel about the movie, but on that, that trailer was this song. Um, it's a song called Sweet Dreams by Angel Olsen, and it's it's real retro sounding, um, kind of some British invasion. It's just got this simple guitar strum, and it's like classic like British invasion sound uh, for a guitar. And uh, she's just got this howling, um, oh, kind of thin in a way, but very very haunting vocal style. Um, and so I just was immediately captured by this track. It sounds like the kind of song that Tarantino would use in one of his movies. Um, and so I, I was looking her up after I, I saw this trailer and figured out which song it was. Um, well, actually, let's let's hear a little bit before I go on. Yeah. 
So the things I, I really love about this track, other than just the nostalgia of a, a real British invasion sound, is uh, her howling, her like her vibrato in her voice is, is really kind of enchanting. And then about halfway through the song, there's this, this really nasty, dirty, uh, grungy guitar with a with a crap ton of tremolo on it. And I'm I'm a sucker for tremolo. My last pick of the week, um, the Zelda Two soundtrack was full of tremolo, and and this is a a real nasty guitar version of tremolo, and I just love that stuff. And so that I was won over immediately by that. And I was looking her up, and uh, she actually came out with an album in late 2014 called "Burn Your Fire for No Witness." And this, it's a little different. It's not straight up retro, like British invasion stuff. Um, it's a little more modern sounding, but there's, there's these callbacks and these vibes in it that, that remind me of like Roy Orbison or Patsy Cline, um, that have this sort of, like, it's just a hint of an oldies feel, but it's in a, in a modern, grungy, um, indie way. And um, I'm, I just think it's good stuff. She's got this track called Unfuck the World that um, it's kind of the simple little three or four chord ditty, but she, she just uh, croons right over it, and it's, it's just real nice. Um, so I, I, that's my pick of the week, Angel Olsen. Yeah, what, what I liked about the, the, the Sweet Dreams, um, once I got over that, it, you didn't pick Sweet Dreams from Eurythmics, um, <laughs> was... Uh, it has to do with the recording technique and all that, but uh, the this kind of wall of sound that builds up from the guitar. So when I think of wall of sound, I think of loudness, but it, it isn't really loudness. It's just you, you've got this wall of guitar where the vocals just peek through a bit. Mm-hmm. So they're not really on top of it, which is something I really like because oh that's oh yeah that's that's a topic for another episode where. Um, <laughs> my opinion on how vo- loud vocals should be but yeah uh, for me it was just the right amount of volume for the vocals to peek through the guitar so the guitar has this wall of sound spreading yeah. out on the I mean, and I was listening uh, to it on headphones and you've got the 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 vocals right in the middle not too loud but you can still understand them which is just perfect but they're like they're like almost being swallowed by the guitars but not quite yeah right <laughs> I, I really love that, and as I said, topic for another episode. But I, I think we've lost that. Yeah, I'm yeah. always going to be the guy of we've lost something. Yeah, yeah, you're always going to be lamenting. Yeah, um, there, there is that sense of like that's that's why her music isn't straight up pop music because that's to me what what pop music is about is vocals above all else. Everything is focused on supporting the vocals, and that's why when you when you really dig in with headphones into some really poppy stuff. The voice is just dominating. It's yeah, it's in your, fa- it's literally in your head, not even in your face. And and all the production tricks are there to to make it omnipresent. And you know whether it's a a, a slight chorus to it or doubling or um, all these things. But yeah, she she definitely doesn't make her voice or whoever helps her figure out the aesthetic when they mix. Um, they definitely find a way to preserve her her unique howl, but without making it dominate and and take over the whole thing so those were our picks of the week as always we'll have uh links in the show notes so you can check them out in their entirety and let us know what you think um and moving on with our with our next topic is uh one of the things that musicians and anyone who's especially in the diy world will eventually encounter but really anyone who's producing music and trying to release it you're going to come up to against the fact that 
when you make a mix that sounds good and then you spit that out and then you compare it to other stuff in the world, it's just not as loud. No. And this sort of immediately, you, you have the sense of inadequacy. I remember the first like couple <laughs> CDs I made in my life back when you actually made CDs of things. Um, <laughs> uh, it was immediately like, why is it so quiet? Why, why is your album so quiet, indie artist? And, um, you immediately, that just, the, the sense of inadequacy and then this, this impossible journey of how can I crush this thing to be louder and louder and louder so that it competes with everything else. And that's, that's a little concise description of what brings the loudness wars into our world. Um, and so if you're not, uh, an engineer or, or an expert on audio, just know that, um, pretty much all the music being produced today gets crushed and compressed to be as loud as possible. And, um, I guess the question for us is, have, have you ever played with that or, or tried to avoid that? Or is it kind of like you just succumb to it? Like, ah, everything's gotta be loud. Well, I'm, right now I'm, I've become a participant, uh, in the loudest <laughs> war. No, so, uh, the, the first album, uh, from my band, The Astray, I, was really adamant about having a dynamic mix and not crushing it. I, I knew I could have crushed it. I, I had the means to to do it, but I I purposefully chose not to do it. And now I listen back to it and discover a lot more problems with the mix itself, less and not, <laughs> not really with the mastering. So it's uh, the the smallest problem is the volume. But uh, with my latest release and we we've done the uh, collaborative uh, Christmas EP with mm-hmm. our friend Benji. And I sent him my mix, and then after he got uh, the other mixes from you guys, um, he told me that mine was the quietest. After I already, <laughs> I already thought that I crushed it too much, so um, I got back to uh, went back to my compressor and to my limiter, pulled a little, for, pulled a few more dBs out of that, <laughs> and. I haven't listened to it in a week, so maybe if I listen to it now, I will now suddenly notice that, oh my god, I've crushed it to death. Well, that's funny to me that you say that, because when I finally heard your final version, I was worried, like, did I, did I crush mine enough? Is it loud enough? <laughs> and that's, this is exactly what happens. It's not like a, it's not like there's actually a war. It's just like this no, constant, oh because, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, so objective, objectively, you can say, okay, it stops at zero. But, uh, they always, they always like, okay, we can, we can get a little bit louder. And then I start going like, okay, this isn't loud enough. Let's introduce some clipping. And now finally <laughs> clipping is okay. Um, which is never okay in my, in my opinion. Yeah. So, um, now and with my, uh, so right before, okay, I don't want to date this episode, but right before Christmas, my band, uh, the Astray released another EP, uh, not another EP, but a single with a few remixes. So now I was in the position of um, getting mixes from other people and trying to get them sound loud, similarly in loudness. And um, what I noticed that I, I'm, I'm, I'm scared that I might have crushed my mixes too much this time. Seriously. Yeah. But, uh, as I said, I will notice that when I listen to it, back to it in, in one week or so when I haven't listened to it, uh, like every day, 24 hours a day yeah. because I had to mix five, six, the same song five or six times, basically. But now I've become a participant in the loudest, or to be honest, I started crushing my mixes, but 
I mean, the thing is, it depends on the kind of song. Now, with my with, with our latest song, it was an uh, indie pop electro rock thing that it had to be loud at some points. But then, of course, there are songs like the Christmas thing I did where I, I, I really didn't want it to be that loud, but then I was told that it was too quiet. So <laughs> I, I did something about it. I, I kind of felt the peer pressure there. And I think that's all what it's all about now because, um, it's, it's the peer yeah. pressure. You want, you want to, want to be loud as loud as the, uh, as the other bands and the other producers. And, um, it's just a slippery slope though. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that I've, I had noticed and I was, told by some people that uh, the way you crush or don't crush your mix um, during mastering uh, has an effect on how it sounds when it's played on the radio because they have the the, the most insane limiters on their equipment there to, yeah. to get the most out of the signal. Uh, so when one of our songs was played on the radio once, it it sounded awful in my opinion. Yeah, I've noticed that even with just mixing podcasts as I do these podcasts, um, I I don't I try not to crush them too hard, but uh, so the loudness wars even comes into spoken word stuff. But I noticed that some podcast software, playback software, has some built-in buttons to basically say make this podcast louder. Because some people don't really do hardly any mixing at all; they basically record and release the audio at whatever level they recorded it at. Yeah. And so the, this button is useful for those podcasts, but for when you actually produce your podcast like we do. And you actually mix it and get it, you know, basically pressed up towards zero so that the voices are loud. Um, when you use that button in the software, it sounds terrible on my podcast. <laughs> it's just like all the breathing in between words is just, it's pushed up to the ceiling. And so it's, it's like a soap opera where every wispy breath is like raspy and, and, and attacking you. And I was like, Oh, how do I, I guess I got to back off a little bit for people that use that button, but then other people that don't use that button are going to be like, he's quiet. I think if a uh, podcast is loud enough, we, they shouldn't even have to use the button. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's funny that you mentioned it because after our last recording, I made a note here uh, about our podcast, uh, about our show, make it louder uh, compared <laughs> to flipping tables <laughs> because I was listening back to our episode just to, to make sure that there were no uh, glitches or anything in there, which you found one. And then I immediately after that listened to the latest episode of Flipping Tables at that time and I noticed, man, they're, they're way louder than us. So <laughs> this time I'm going to crush us. <laughs> I think there's a little less pressure in podcasts because it's not like a playlist of yeah. songs where every two minutes it switches songs and you really notice when there's a, a loud volume difference. Um, but I was, I was interested in comparing across mediums, not, you know, the podcast versus songs, but also movies. Cause one of the last bastions of dynamic in sound, I feel is film where there's, there's a difference between the person whispering and the cannon firing. Um, it still exists in film and, but it doesn't exist when they play films on TV. And maybe this is the analogy of your song being played on the radio. Um, whenever I see like, Oh, this disaster, this summer blockbusters on TV, I guess I'll sit down and let it go for a bit. Um, they compress the audio. Um, they compress the hell out of the audio of the movie. Um, so that you get that same soap opera. The, the breathing is so loud. It's just as loud as any words they're using. And the gunshots are brought down to the talking level voice. And I don't know, like, I don't like hearing movies that way. 
because they they are dynamic. And so when you crush them that much, it's just terrible. It's a terrible experience. But there is a use case for that. There's the person who's not really watching the movie. They're just kind of watching it. And there's other stuff going on in the room. There's a kid playing. There's someone cooking in the kitchen. And that compression lets you set one level for the movie and you can hear everything comfortably. And, and so like, I can understand that. And definitely I've heard people complain about when they're watching a dynamic movie that, you know, they have to constantly manage the volume because it gets to an action sequence and they're like, Oh my God, turn down. I hear that all the time from my parents when I was at my parents uh, in the evening when they are having TV, watching, watching a movie, uh, because in, in Germany, at least I've noticed that they don't, they don't compress the, uh, the movie version. So we, we actually get the, uh, the movie dynamic version on TV. Um, and the reason why I just noticed that is because I remember all the complaining from <laughs> turn that down. <laughs> so, so I don't know if my, my, my mom is watching a movie in the, in the living room and my father's in the kitchen having something other on TV. And then for, an action sequence starts in both movies and they start competing with each other. <laughs> I had that all the time. So, uh, and, and then the, the dialogue starts again, or even better when you've got action mixed with the dialogue that's very quiet. Uh, they never put down the remote. They have, have a habit of having the remote right next to them, two of them. Yeah. Per, per TV. And, uh, so in, in Germany, at least we get the dynamic version, which for yeah. me is okay because I, if I w put, sit down to watch a movie, I actually like it that way, but I understand the reason to not do it. So it's an interesting dilemma. If you're mixing sound is, do you target one of these use cases? Obviously with movies, they target the movie theater where you want that dynamic experience. You want to be like, Oh, that gun is loud. And when they're talking calmly in the room, it's, it's not as loud as a gun. It's just not, which makes and, sense. <laughs> yeah. But when you're just kind of multitasking at home and you're like, Oh, I throw a movie on, um, you kind of don't want that experience. And I don't know, I'd, I'd rather, you know, obviously I don't want to sit there with the remote and manage the volume, but compressing it to hell is kind of a, a shitty solution too. So yeah. is, you know, what happens? Is there, do, do these mastering engineers provide a different mix for, for TV? And then it's, you know, it's less dynamic, but it's not, it's not as blindly compressed. It's like, yeah, we, we had to adjust the levels of things, but we didn't just crush them. I don't know. I'd say most of the time they're, they're just going to leave it to the TV stations just for yeah. budget reasons, because why would I put work into making another mix when they've licensed the movie to play it on TV anyway? I'm, I don't care about, they could say, they could say, I don't care about the audience anymore. Yeah, or especially as a, that artist that, that put this mix together and you're like, you want me to do what? <laughs> you want me to ruin the, the aesthetic of the way this thing sounds so that people watching in a crappy situation that don't really care about my movie have a slightly more pleasant experience? Screw them. Who cares? But so now what I'm interested in, uh, have, have musicians done that? I, for some reason I have in my head that radio did some, Radiohead did something of that kind where they released an album with all the, uh, I guess even all the stems of the, uh, the, the single track. So you can really mix the album yourself or which other is it in rainbows. They did that. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, has, has, uh, uh, not Trent Reznor done some of that too. Yeah. 
that that's what that was on my mind. Trent Reznor, I, I think he did that with with one of the Nine Inch Nails albums. Um, yeah, so where he uploaded the the album, so you can obviously download it um, <laughs> uh, with all the single tracks of all the single uh, songs. So you can basically remix the album in the classical sense of doing another mix of it or just making another song out of it. Yeah, and um, which is the the other extreme, of course. So right in the middle you could say okay we can do different mixes for as you just said for different uh venues so um as i've learned i will now provide a different mix for when i send my songs to radio or if i'm going to put them on uh into the soundtrack of of an indie film if for some reason some at some point somebody asked me to 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 provide it um it's always good to have alternate mixes ready yeah. just for different occasions well, I've also seen a lot of artists that the, the basic split they'll do is here's the album version and here's with vocals gone instrumental. Yeah. And so that filmmakers can even mix and match between like, oh, I like this line of your vocals, but then I need it to clear out so that my characters can say something. And so they, they can use both versions together to, to get exactly what they want. And depending on the filmmaker and how much you trust them, you might, you know, be like, all right, you know, hack together whatever you need out of my song versus kind of like, hey, buddy, (laughs) I hear it all the time. Whenever I know a song and it's in a movie, it's almost always cut in strange ways, which if you don't know the song, you don't notice because they do it well. But when you do know the song, you're like, yeah, they cut out, you know, two measures out of that verse and it just went straight to the chorus when they wanted it to. And it's jarring when you know the song but yeah. makes sense sucker, for the film sucker punch comes to mind there's uh this one Björk track that's heavily chopped up and uh alternated but it still sounds okay i mean it's a Björk song you can do every, anything with a Björk song it will <laughs> sound okay <laughs> <laughs> it's so internally consistent that even the small yeah. pieces of it <laughs> work <laughs> so yeah, I think just as listeners, you, and I think this is one thing where producing music makes you really acutely aware of this, whereas you can kind of be blissfully ignorant um, if you're just a listener, is this loudness war. And it's something that's very real and very much with us. And um, it'll play into, if we get to the topic uh, another time of bit rates and, and song quality, that really the loudness wars are the biggest problem with the sound quality of music today. And it's before you start arguing about compression or how good are your headphones? Do you have a good stereo? Like this is well before it even gets to that point. Um, the actual mix of the music is already kind of destroyed <laughs> just so it can be loud. Yeah. So I think that's about it for today. We want to thank you for listening to Bits and Pieces, a Sunrise Robot show. And if you'd like to check out the show notes or see more episodes or check out the other podcasts on the network, you can head to sunriserobot.net slash bits and pieces. And you can find these show notes if you just add a, a slash zero zero two at the end. And uh, check out these links. Check out these songs we mentioned. And uh, Matt, where can people find you on the Internet if they want to get in touch? Um, they can find me on Twitter at Echolox, which is E-C-H-O-L-O-X. Um, or I guess Twitter is okay for that. <laughs> I mean, you can find me on Facebook and Google+, Plus, but uh, just just go with Twitter. Yeah. And uh, if they want to check out some of your music, what's the best place to go? 
probably um, theastray.de for my electro-rock indie pop project or facebook.com slash saltaskies for more post-progressive rock. Excellent. You can find me, Michael Edwards, on Twitter. Uh, my handle is mEdwardsMusic. Um, or you can go to michaeledwards.bandcamp.com for my own music. Or I had a band that ran for a little while called Genetic Engines, and you can go to geneticengines.bandcamp.com and check out those records. And uh, I want to thank you for listening and uh, definitely get in touch with follow-up and questions or if you have any comments about the Loudness Wars or video game soundtracks. We'd love to hear what your favorite uh, soundtracks are or your experiences with mixing music. All the loudest mixes you've ever had. Yeah, what's the loudest of the loudest? Um, I'd say Deerhoof competes on having super loud mixes. Anyway, uh, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. 